Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, a new video service with more than 5,000 lectures. As a member, you can watch as many lectures as you want anytime on any device. And for a limited time, Culture Gabfest listeners can watch the fundamentals of photography for free by visiting thegreatcoursesplus.com slash culture. And by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at clubw.com, and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you. Get wine delivered directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. For 50% off of your first order, go to clubw.com slash culture. And by Amazon. Detective Harry Bosch is back on the new season of Amazon's original series, Bosch, based on the best-selling novels by Michael Conley. Stream the new season on March 11th on Amazon Prime Video. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Unmeeting Edition. It's Wednesday, March 8th, 2016. On today's show, Kendrick Lamar's new record is here, the purposefully unceremonious follow-up to his masterpiece, To Pimp a Butterfly. We discuss Untitled Unmastered with Slate's music critic, Carl Wilson. And then over the past, say, 100 years maybe, the office has been an integral part of both the economy and the iconography of the developed world. How is the office changing? And specifically, Julie, I think we're going to get into it. Are we going to keep meetings? Are you going to keep meetings at Slate? Uh, Let's discuss. Let's discuss later. (laughs) I can make no commitments at this time. (laughs) <laughs> there are no action items on that list. <laughs> uh, okay. And finally, um, that the Ku Klux Klan in 2016 can be at all topical is both tragedy and farce, mostly tragedy. Um, nonetheless, the novelist Matthew Pearl has written a thrilling long-form piece about the demise of the original, the first KKK, in the years after the Civil War. We discuss his remarkable Slate essay with uh, Mr. Pearl himself. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. Uh, and of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Still here, wanly sitting here, <laughs> waiting for recognition. Hi, Steve. Julia, do we have any business before we start? We do. Three pieces. Okay. Call the meeting to order then. Okay. Here, here. First piece of business for Slate Plus listeners. Today, we will be answering a Slate Plus listener question, which is, uh, what cultural experiences reduce you to tears? We'll be discussing that with Carl Wilson, our music critic who's working on a book on a similar subject. 
If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash culture plus to sign up and you can hear a bonus segment from all of us every week. Issue the second, we are hiring a new intern. This is a paid internship in New York City. Please send your resume and a brief note explaining why you'd be a great intern to culturefest at slate.com and use the subject line internship. We will be accepting such submissions through Friday of this week. Again, that's culturefest at slate.com, subject line internship for a paid internship in New York. Sniff, Lindsay, we will miss you. Uh, We are looking for a worthy successor. And finally, we're doing a live show. Doing a live show on April 6th in New York City at the SVA Theater at 730. Uh, You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. We are so excited to see you there. They are selling fast, but there's some left. So please go check it out, slate.com slash live. All right. Julia, a couple things. First, um, uh, am I right in thinking that SVA is the School of Visual Arts Theater? Yes, Okay. And then secondly, Dana, did you wanly take the minutes of our meeting <laughs> in Bartleby, in sad, anonymous, Bartleby-like fashion? I merely stared at a brick wall, Steve. I preferred not to take the minutes. <laughs> All right, moving on. Kendrick Lamar is certainly in the discussion for the title of greatest living rapper, his to Pimp a Butterfly which came out almost a year ago to the day, was universally regarded as a masterpiece. It was a dense, weird, sonic, and lyrical impasto. And now he has let drop Untitled Unmastered, which arrives in a plain sleeve. It has a work-in-progress vibe. It's in stark contrast to its predecessor. It is sketchy and sketched out spare and somewhat incomplete. Carl Wilson joins us to discuss it. Carl, of course, is Slate's music critic, pop critic. Carl, welcome to the show. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Why don't you uh, tell me I'm right or tell me I'm wrong? This album seems to be in pretty pointed contrast to uh, his previous one. Yeah, I mean, it's of a piece with Two Pimple Butterfly on a lot of levels. The same band and the same sound, and these are mostly tracks that were demoed and, and created for that album, but never sort of completed the way that the tracks on Two Pimple Butterfly are. So it has this kind of looser, more kind of jammy vibe, and also, it seems to include a lot of the tracks that sort of show off his rapping in ways that to Bimp Butterfly as intensively because that album was really trying to create an overall texture, whereas this gathering of tracks takes a few kind of more showpiecey things and has those as well. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a variety show, and, it, and it's a little bit of a different side of, of Kendrick Lamar. All right, Carl, pick a track we can listen to from the record. Actually, before we get to Untitled Unmastered, let's listen to a little bit of All Right, just uh, by way of contrast. All's my life I has to fight, nigga. All's my life I, hard times like yeah, bad trips like yeah, Nazareth, I'm fucked up, homie, you fucked up, but if God got us, then we gon' be all right. All right, so let's talk about one of the songs from this new album, and it, it they are. It's going to be hard to talk about since they're all called Untitled, one through whatever. And Can I just is- say that I find that gambit really annoying and ungenerous to the listener? 
numbering your songs with these long, complicated digital dates on which they were recorded? Come on, give us something. That in, in addition to, sorry to go off on this, but the completely black sleeve and the uncapitalized words, untitled and unmastered. I can't help it. I flashed on the moment in Spinal Tap where they make the black album <laughs> and they debate how much more black could it be? And the answer is none more black. <laughs> I think the intention is to give the sensation that you're sort of peering into his notebook and also to sort of not make claims for these as finished songs. You know, one of the things about Kendrick Lamar is that he's kind of a notorious perfectionist. And I think that even in order to make himself able to put this album out in this form, I think he kind of had to really, really forefront that sense that these, you know, these are just, these are just work tapes, even though they're kind of much more polished than 90% 90% of what other people put out as songs a lot of the time anyway. It's true, and that it's a very marked contrast between you know what seems to be just a very haphazard way of titling and presenting the album and what are obviously incredibly polished and worked over pieces of music. So let's listen to number three, however we want to call it. What did the Asians say? A piece of mind. That's what the Asians said. I needed divine. Intervention was his religion, and I was surprised. Him believing in Buddha, me believing in God. Asked him, what are you doing? He said, taking my time. Meditation is a must. It don't hurt if you try. See, you're thinking too much. Plus, you too full of yourself. Worried about your career. You have a think of your health. What did the Indians say? A piece of land. That's what the Indians said. I needed the man. Telling me longevity. Send the dirt. Should buy some property first. Your profit a better dollar with generational perks. Equity had his best. Really, you should invest. These tangible things expire. So, yeah, that's... Um Untitled 03, and it's one of several tracks on here that were originally performed on TV when nobody had heard them. That one was um, a performance that he gave right towards the end of the run of the Colbert Report. And then um, number two is something he performed on the Jimmy Fallon Show, and that was part of what gave birth to this album, was that LeBron James tweeted after the Grammys demanding that he start releasing these um, unreleased tracks and 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 that's the official backstory for why this album exists. Because <laughs> when LeBron asks you to make an album, you make it. Yeah, exactly. That was an incredible performance at the Grammys, incidentally, and I'm not a Grammys watcher or a Kendrick Lamar knower, but in the context of researching this, I, I watched the uh, the performance at the Grammys, and it seemed like the kind of thing that would tear an award show in half. It, it was so political and so raw and so uncompromising. It was quite impressive. Yeah, it was kind of this incredible moment that just seemed like we weren't watching an awards show anymore, which is one of those things that Lamar is able to carry off. And he has a sort of complicated and tricky history with the Grammys as well, kind of famously being defeated by Macklemore a couple of years ago for Good Kid Mad City, and then this year was by Taylor Swift. And there's this kind of sense, especially after that performance, that he's not, in a sense, getting his due, um, which has been, you know, a good conversation point for things about the music industry and and why recognition doesn't come where it ought to. And in some ways, that's been a useful thing to have happened. So, Carl, I have to admit that, you know, I um, share an office, well, I share one office with a septuagenarian, but I now also share an office with a younger artist who put on to Pimp a Butterfly, and it just absolutely floored me, completely blew me away. Um, really, every aspect of it, obviously, from the rapping, but to the production values, which are just on a uh, Tempo Butterfly, are, are incredible. So, talk a little bit about how the sonic palette gets put together for Kendrick Lamar and how this one is different. In some ways, similar, but in many ways, different. Well, Tempo Butterfly is just a lot more layered um, and worked than this. You know, he works with a group of um, young jazz musicians out of LA, as well as a sort of panoply of producers. 
And on Spoon Butterfly, it's really kind of a cinematic texture that gets drawn over the course of the whole album, whereas on Untitled Unmastered, as the title suggests, you're really getting a much more sort of raw studio sound comparatively. Again, I would say that, you know, if you if one didn't know that up front, <laughs> you might not really think that with about half the tracks that they sound pretty finished. But there aren't as many there aren't as many layers and layers of, of instrumentation and effects on this record as as there were there for sure. Carl, I wanted you to talk about the the multi vocality. I don't know what other word to use for it, but the, the the different personas that Kendrick Lamar shifts in and out of as he sings. It, I didn't realize that he did that in, until a few tracks into this album, where I started to realize, wait a minute, his his voice keeps changing, his persona keeps changing. He's doing characters, and I wanted you to talk about that and maybe point us to a place on the album where you hear that in action. Yeah, I mean that's something again that picks off off of Pimp a Butterfly, where there's this ongoing figure of this kind of devilish antagonist that he nicknames Lucy, who speaks and sort of taunts him throughout the album. And, and there's also kind of a, a shift between sort of an outside voice and an inside voice in a lot of ways, where there's passages where he's interrogating himself, and there's passages where he's interacting with the outside world in different ways. And all of those bring out different voices in him. And then, you know, for example, um, in the final track, um, Untitled 08, you he shifts into the voice of a of a South African, sort of questioning him about the narrative that he's telling about Compton and, and questioning whether he's um, indulging in self-pity by feeling bad about the conditions that he grew up in compared to global conditions. There's all, all kinds of ways that he modulates his voice to represent each of those positions. I wrote this song like a little broke home, baby. You know the poverty stricken, the little broke boy, baby. Somebody yell, can't take American, the show is crazy. Then I said, why? Then he looked me in the eye and said, nigga, you fucked up. You're banking on good enough. You're wishing for miracles. You've never been through shit. You're grinding still. You go, you settle for everything. Complain about everything. You say you're so cracked. My world and fed me. Your projects ain't shit. I live in a hub, bitch. I'm living to keep warm. You live in a paper. I prayed my way through by waiting on I lie. You played your way through by living in sci-fi. Bullshit yourself and talking to strangers. Same thing go for the ones you came with. Well, y'all came on the boat looking for hope. And all you can say is that you're looking for dope. These days ain't no compromise. And your pain ain't mine. In today's day and age, we practice the self-pity of taking the easy way out. You ain't on them, him, and her. But when the blessing takes too long, that's when you go wrong. You selfish motherfucker. So, Carl, one final question before we go. I think it's clear with this album and with Timba Butterfly that... If you want to understand the most interesting things happening in rap today, you really need to be following Lamar's career. Where would you tell listeners who aren't caught up to start? Should they start with this new album? Should they start with To Pimp a Butterfly? I think this is our first time really talking about his work, but I'd be curious for your advice on where listeners should dive in. Yeah, I mean, I would say people should start with To Pimp a Butterfly for sure. Um, Tracks like All Right or The Black or the Berry that are really sort of the standout moments from that album are a good way to familiarize yourself and then you find yourself sinking deeper in pretty quickly i think uh all right well the new album is called untitled unmastered it's from kendrick lamar uh carl wilson thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us about it always a pleasure all right well now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor julia turner what do we have 
Our sponsor this week is The Great Courses and their new Great Courses Plus video learning service. This offers unlimited access to a huge library of The Great Courses lecture series in many, many fascinating subjects. And they're giving our listeners an incredible opportunity right now to watch one of their very popular courses, The Fundamentals of Photography, absolutely free. I love that we have this opportunity the week after we spoke to Gregory Crudson uh, and spoke a little bit about the fact that Instagram has made photography and performative photography a more easy aspect of all of our lives. If you want to actually learn how to shoot something beautiful, uh, maybe not as beautiful as what Gregory Crudson shoots, but nevertheless more beautiful than what you would shoot otherwise, you can check out The Fundamentals of Photography, taught by professional photographer and National Geographic fellow Joel Sartore. He offers tips and tools for taking better photos and valuable advice on lighting, framing, perspectives, and more. Just for a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream this course, a $235 value, and hundreds of other courses for free. But this offer is only available for a limited time, so hurry. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash culture. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash culture. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, moving on. What is the fate of the modern office? It's been a central part of our economy, but more than that, from Bartleby and Kafka up through Ricky Gervais's masterful TV show of that very name, The Office, it's been an iconic part of our literature and pop culture. Yes, it's a place, but it's also a kind of white-collar workers ontology. It's the way we think of work, of being at work, of being in work, and yet the internet, flex time, Uberization, the flattening of the global economy, all of them may be conspiring to eradicate it. Um, we have a kahuna here, the big boss. Julia, you command an office from a Captain Kirk-like swivel chair um, with wisdom knit upon your brow and an order always uh, ready at the lip. At least that's how I imagine it, uh, 110 miles or so away. Yes, I noticed that's where you've chosen to work, Steve. <laughs> it's as far away from me as possible. Very, very fucking far away. <laughs> um, the New York Times says, Run, what would you even call it? It's a package? Special issue. A special issue. Thank you. Um, I can't manage the jaw-breaking technology of your profession. They, so the New York Times has run a special issue on work and the fate of work. But quite a lot of it, Julia, does focus on the office, two pieces in particular, one about flex time and one about meetings. The meetings piece is written by Virginia Heffernan, and we've spent too little time over the last eight years or so on the show discussing the wonderful journalist Virginia Heffernan. We finally have an excuse, but let's start a little bigger. Talk to me a little bit about commanding an office. Well, it's so interesting to work in the environment that we work in now where what Slate produces is digital. The way we communicate with each other is primarily digital. Sometimes even when we're all sitting in the same room, the way we communicate is primarily digital. And we can do it from anywhere and at any time, which affords us all both great freedom to you know, go to our kids' play or work from home in the morning if the cable guy is coming with, you know, nary a hiccup in our workflow. I mean, one of our politics bloggers who's covering the campaign's girlfriend got a fellowship in Paris. So he's going to be blogging the campaign from Paris for two months because why not? And that's a, he'll be able to do it just as well from there. His brief never included a ton of on the ground reporting. He'll be able to do it just as well from there. In fact, being in a different time zone will give us a little bit of better coverage of things early on in the morning. And so why not? Why not say yes to a request like that, right? And that's a great boon for him and with no real cost to Slate or its readers. We really take advantage as a workplace of the kind of flexibility that the digital world affords. 
But I think we also suffer like a lot of digital workplaces from the creeping depredations of the ubiquity of work these days. You know, I often do a big chunk of work on Sunday afternoons and catch up on stuff. And I recently have started trying to schedule those emails to arrive in people's inboxes Monday morning rather than giving them a big email barrage on Sunday afternoon because I don't want them to feel that the fact that I'm working on a Sunday afternoon means that I expect them to like interrupt whatever soccer practice they're at or life project they are working on to answer me in real time. There are definitely times when, as a journalist, you need to do work in off hours because sometimes news happens in off hours. But me randomly following up on the you know, branding around the iPhone app does not need to be attended to on a Sunday afternoon. So, you know, I think we've taken advantage of the flexibility of the digital age and also probably still have some more fine tuning to do in terms of figuring out how a digital office can intersect with a modern life in a really productive and useful way. Mm. Dana, that's the voice of the boss lady talking, but now I want to address you, Dana Stevens, ontologist, right? Being in an office is a way of being in the world, even though that sounds woefully pretentious. I actually mean it sincerely. It's it's a way in which a large portion of the knowledge work, I mean virtually all of the knowledge workforce and a large portion of American society has ordered its experience of reality. You have spent some time in an office. You're like me, kind of tangential to one. What is it like to walk over that threshold into the offices of Slate and sense that you might have been, you know, cubicled there and working there, <laughs> as, ma- as many of your as many of your colleagues are? But you're not. You're a free agent. Like, what what's your experience of the office? What do you make of offices? I don't know. I mean, I guess w- reading all of these 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 pieces about the evolution of the workplace, I felt like, oh, I recognize all these phenomena, even though I don't work in an office every day because we're office adjacent, right? You and I, I guess, especially me, because I physically come here every week to do this. But you know, I saw, for example, the coming down of the cubicles and the turning of the Slate office into an open plan space, and I saw the upspringing of Slate as a way of socializing while at work, although I don't use it as much as the people that are actually next to each other in the room. I'm, I'm off somewhere else. I'm looking at their, their Slack accounts. But all those things seem to be redefining officeness in a way that ultimately I probably can't opine on as somebody who doesn't spend every day in an office, but it applies to us contract workers as well, which is, as Julia says, every place is your workplace. And as a result, you know, work ends up becoming a thing that almost exists virtually. It exists in, in the air in between us, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's in the cloud, and we can all return to it and have our meetings in the cloud. And it seems like the physical workplace is sort of disappearing. So I'm curious to know from Julia what Slate does to try to keep people around or what advantage you see in keeping people around. Do you, do you fear the, the workspace dispersing so much into the virtual cloud that, um, you know, there can't be... There can't be sit productive sit-downs with people anymore. You know, it's a good question. I do really like when everybody's here. I think it's useful when people all come together. I think you generate a kind of idea that you don't generate when you're off in your own silo. I think it creates opportunities for friendship and collegiality and other bonds that in general make the magazine better and stronger. But, you know, half of our team works in D.C. also. So even when people do you know, come in and, and manage to not have a cable guy appointment on a Tuesday morning. Then sometimes they are sitting in an office having a video conference call with a bunch of people who are in D.C. or Ohio or Paris. So, you know, I have really become a big convert to teleconference meetings over the past year because I think actually seeing the faces of people remotely forces you to confront their live present humanity in a way that you don't always on a conference call with 
audio of unpredictable quality. And I think that's been really great for us. And we've we've started having a bunch of video meetings that are that are kind of useful and productive and good. And we should talk more about video calls, I suppose, when we when we dig into Virginia's piece about meetings. But before we do, I'm curious, did you guys think when you were kids like that you would you know, grow up and like wear a suit or like a blouse with a bow and, you know, go into an office in stilettos with a briefcase oh, every day. Like, did you envision yeah. office futures for yourself? And do you find yourself surprised that you're not in one? No, I don't think I did. I no. mean, to, to the extent I, I envisioned any kind of workplace, I think it was more like a newsroom. You know, it was based on my enjoyment of the show Lou Grant, the spinoff from Mary Tyler Moore, and my desire to be Billy, the girl reporter on the Lou Grant show. Um, so I guess that's that's a form of an office. But, uh, but no, I, I think I probably experienced the same feeling of faint claustrophobia and fear that I do now about offices. Mm-hmm. Although I enjoy my jaunts through this late office to come and tape this, I feel really lucky to be, I mean, to, to, to use the distinction that Virginia Heffernan uses in this this article about meetings to be one of the makers, I feel like. So Virginia, in her piece, makes this distinction, which she gets from the venture capitalist and, I guess, management guru, Paul Graham, between managers and makers in offices, and that the managers are the people that are, you know, that have to be there. They're the bees in the hive that make things flow and, you know, sort of monitor the workflow and, and create whatever products the company is trying to create together, whereas the makers are these, you know, lucky sods who get to go off and, and think by themselves and get four-hour chunks. So I guess he's very big on, you know, each maker should have at least an uninterrupted four-hour chunk with no meetings to come up with their great creative ideas. And of course, Virginia Heffernan has some fun at the expense of, you know, the resentment of the manager types for the makers. And I, I guess, I mean, I feel lucky enough that Slate, to some degree, does treat its contract writers as makers. I mean, it, it may not be like that anybody's guarding my four-hour chunk, you know, with sentries standing around it. But there is kind of a sense that, you know, you go off now, little writer, and do that thing you do and bring us your work words and then I bring them the words and you know I've I've done my part of the job is that horrible that I don't I don't want to be one of the people in the editorial meetings making it all flow I just want to go off and do my word stuff no, it's, it's not horrible at all and these are sort of mutually you know supportive kinds of labor what I find interesting about the office issue and the work issue in general is the larger question of you know and there's a sub branch of economics that studied this is why we have corporations or firms in the first place right these entities that produce the need for office work and the theory has always been because the history doesn't necessarily tell us exactly why they formed over time but the idea was that it was there's a frictional cost to having to renegotiate your business relationship with different free agents on a day-to-day or even hour-to-hour or minute-to-minute basis you know to constantly recontract labor is just very very expensive and it's a useless cost and so people coordinate they create something like a modern corporation in order to form non-contractual, continuous, enduring relationships, one of whose hallmarks is trust, like fairly high trust. So I can, you know, they also are hierarchical. You can give someone an order. You are fairly competent to obey it. But also, quite simply, you have collegiality, and collegiality is this kind of oil in the gears of of capitalism and especially knowledge capitalism. Um, and um, what always has interested me about that is that I the thing that I understand least, Julia, about offices is simply what that human relationship is like. Like, I, part of me understands contracting with someone on a purely self-interested or even possibly cunning, cunningly self-interested basis in order to get something, some economic good that you want. And another part of me completely understands the maker paradigm of going off into la-la land and um, <laughs> producing, <laughs> producing four-hour chunks. 
but this kind of in-between relation is a purely human part of it that to me is is alien which is just what's your relationship with these people who are around you that you you know pass in the hallway that you make these this like what what face because it's it's hence the interest in the theory right like presumably it's not a game face or a war, you know kind of you know warfare face that you're putting on in order to cunningly outmanipulate your fellow <laughs> office worker but presumably it's also not your familial face or your private face or your personal face it's this kind of hybrid face that people display to one another among office do I sound like a space alien who's never been in an office you kind of do you sound you sound <laughs> I'm beginning to understand why you don't want to work in an office. <laughs> it seems like you kind of have a head trip about it. Um, I mean, I, you know, look, take everything I say here with the grain of salt attendant from the woman wearing the, you know, the top hat and the monocle. Like, obviously, I'm the boss. So I what I, what I say <laughs> God, is the, she's the planter's the peanut guy. Card. You're the monopoly. Uh, like, I, you know, the insert asterisk here about power structures. But. You know, obviously, I started at Slate as an assistant. I've worked here for 13 years. I think one of the things that's a great privilege of journalism generally, broadly, is that it's a very human profession. It's a profession that's basically where you get paid to be curious about the world and find things out about it and tell those things to other people. And so fundamentally, you're curious about the human experience and you're humans telling stories about the human experience to humans, which I think can produce less, you know, mechanistic workforces in my experience and then slate in general because we're such a voice-driven publication like the the point is to be you on the page and we have a set of kind of house interests and slatey approaches to the world and to the kinds of arguments that we think are worth making and stories that we think are worth telling but but a big part of that is embracing the specific humanity of all of the people here who are finding out about the world and thinking about it and analyzing it for our readers so obviously all of us have you know private things that we don't share with our colleagues, I'm sure. But the general mode, I think, that we expect of people who show up here is like, be you, be like a really the smartest, most curious, most fun and lively version of yourself. And uh, let's all talk about the world together and figure out what we want to do about it. I mean, it's to me, it is a great privilege to work with all the people that I work with every day. Well, I mean, another of these articles in the work issue, not the one by Virginia Heffernan, but one that was about what makes a great team and, and sort of how to construct a successful work team, was was very big on this idea that, I mean, essentially intimacy and unguardedness and showing one's vulnerability sometimes at work with, with one's work team is a really important part of improving your productivity as well. And um, that, you know, all of these tests had sort of shown that meetings that were run according to Robert's rules of order and had these, these very uh, efficient agendas that were that were worked through in the long run wound up being less successful in terms of morale building and getting people to work together productively than meetings in which, you know, people chatted about their kids for five minutes before the meeting started. And, uh, and for example, um, there was a, a meeting cited in which one of the higher ups, as they were going around sort of saying their piece, said something about, oh, something you all need to know about me is that I have stage four cancer. And he just sort of dropped this bomb in the middle of the meeting, you know, which obviously is something that you can't go around doing every day, exposing, you know, your deepest health secrets to to other workmates. But in this case, I think it really helped the team to coalesce around him and sort of feel like, well, this is a place that we can we can trust each other and, and be real people with bodies and families and lives. Yeah, the one phrase that uh, seemed really interesting out of that article around what makes teams work well was this notion of psychological safety and that you should 
kind of foster a place where people feel safe being themselves and raising their concerns about work. I do want to jump back, though, to Virginia's piece about meetings, which to me also reads as the as a story about meetings by someone who has not spent a ton of time in an office environment understanding what meetings are for. All of this, like, alien descended from space, like, meetings, why do people gather? Oh, these conference tables. Oh, gosh, the box lunch. Yeah, it's like... I don't think it's that complicated. <laughs> uh, and the other thing that, that she does in that piece that seems slightly odd to me is, you know, in this notion between the maker's schedule and the manager's schedule, it creates this kind of inverted hierarchy between the makers and the managers where the desired thing is to be the maker with the free, uncluttered schedule and the, you know, the, the lame-o manager schedule is the, the sad one with the managers yearning to break free. You know, I don't really understand what the pay scales are in these tech companies, but obviously, typically when you are a manager, there are attendant benefits that come with having a cruddy schedule like that, like decision-making power, compensation. The manager is not typically at the bottom of the pay scale. So this notion of woe is me for the managers with their busy schedules is kind of like, well, that's kind of the price of admission. So suck it up, people. But, you know, meetings can be run badly, but the purpose of a good meeting does not seem mysterious to me. You want to gather a bunch of people who are working on a similar project. You want to use it as a place to share ideas in real time more efficiently than you could through any electronic or other means. And then you want to make a set of like quick and clear decisions based on the new information presented at the meeting. Like if you can run meetings like that, they're usually not that annoying. There still might be a lot of them. Definitely, I would like a maker schedule. That sounds great. I probably should not reveal on this podcast that sometimes I just schedule blocks of time in my calendar for me to think or get specific projects done that I know will take big chunks of time, and then meetings are not scheduled then, and that is good. I also know of a company that just declared Wednesdays meeting-free Wednesdays, which sounds great. I think maybe we should do something like that. But this notion of like, oh, the meeting is the mindless kudzu of the office, and it's just creeping over us all to strangle us. It's like there definitely can be bad meetings that are badly run, but often a meeting is a useful way to gather a bunch of people working on a project and make a bunch of quick decisions that can set the agenda for work that follows on it. Like that, I don't know a better way to do that. If I did, I would have fewer meetings, but I think it is usually a good way to do those things. Okay, but stipulated that both Virginia Heffernan and I are some combination of space alien and maker. The piece doesn't just reflect that sensibility. It really does reflect the venture capital and especially the um, Silicon Valley venture capital approach to traditional work. And there is this sense that not only does the does technology and the entrepreneur disrupt some you know sclerotic practice out in the world in order to make a buck, they also disrupt their own work practices. I mean, this has been a feature of the tech world since God knows the 1970s. And there's a obs- very West Coast obsession with not recreating very East Coast, very traditional, very hierarchical work spaces or structures. And I think the still very alive question is, to what degree are we going to not only reimagine the office, but evolve beyond it? And I think an important aspect of this that maybe I didn't see reflected enough in the special issue is that, you know, these contracts or implicit contracts that, that made up a corporation were reciprocal. And people who worked for a corporation gave up a high degree of freedom and possibly even the ability to go out into the marketplace on a continuous basis and make more money in exchange for security. It worked both ways. And so what I find most interesting is that the venture capital world likes making as attractive as possible and as romantic as possible the notion of the free spirit partially as a way of dissolving these this aspect of the social contract and making piecework labor 
that much more attractive and universal because it's cheaper. And it disburdens the traditional corporation of all of its reciprocal obligations to employees like pensions, benefits, pegged salaries, contractual salaries, um, and on and on and on and on. Right. And very and very concrete disadvantages as well, like paying for your own health insurance, right? Not having a, any kind of a pension plan, having to plan for your own retirement. You know, it places a lot of financial burden on the worker that previously was, was taken on by the employer. Yeah. I mean, obviously, that is sort of the classic trade-off of that arrangement. I think the thing that was striking about the set of pieces in this work issue was that it tracked many different threads along this continuum. So obviously, there's the rise of the 1099 company like Uber or Handy that's trying to that extends a piecework contract model but doesn't actually offer the freedom that typically has been associated with that, that sort of offers more of the drawbacks and the freedom. I think in some of these startup environments, there is a privileging or an excitement around the makers who get to have the maker schedules, but often these are the people who are getting the gold-plated benefits that come with some of these startups. And then there was a really interesting piece in the series on flex time, which is becoming increasingly something that's offered within the context of a classic you know, benefits having standard job, which is certainly how the staff positions at Slate operate. So, you know, certainly being aware of that tension and this and the ulterior motives of companies in these relationships is is uh, never an unsmart way to look at the world. But I do think we're seeing change in a bunch of different directions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree. Okay, well, the issue, it's the work issue of the New York Times Magazine reimagining the office. The specific piece by Virginia Heffernan, a wonderful journalist, is Meet M-E-E-T is murder. Um, and uh, anyway, come to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest, and tell us what you think about traditional forms of office work and whether their dissolution is a net benefit or a net loss. We would love to hear from you. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. That's right, Steve. The Slate Culture Gab Fest this week is also sponsored by Club W, an online wine club. If you are anything like me, then you know exactly what you like and how you like it, except when you're in the wine aisle. Tannins and terroirs mean nothing to you, Steve. Well, maybe not you, Steve, unless you happen to be a fancy pants professional sommelier. But with Club W, the guessing game is over. Club W is the world's only personalized wine club, and your wines get sent directly to your door. Not only will they send you wine, they will send you wine that you will love drinking. Because before you order it, you take an easy six-question quiz that figures out your palate so that every bottle you get is perfectly tailored to your own taste. They also offer a no-risk guarantee that if you don't love what they send, you get your money back. And right now, Club W is offering our listeners 50% off your first order if you go to clubw.com slash culture. All right, Steve, back to the show. All right, moving on. The original Ku Klux Klan dates to the aftermath of the Civil War during the Reconstruction period when the hooded anonymous paramilitary terror cell made up of local prominent citizens enforced a regime of white supremacy even in the face of federal troops. The novelist Matthew Pearl has written a gripping long-form tour de force about the careful, canny, and quite dramatic extinction of that first KKK at the hands of the heroic Lewis Merrill paging George Clooney, by the way. I mean, this thing is going to get options so freaking fast. It already did last week, Steve. You're behind your variety. I mean, it it barely touched earth before it was scooped up by who who got it? Uh, So Joseph Gordon-Levitt is uh, attached to it as a producer and potentially to play Lewis Merrill, and Amazon Movie Studio is the company that acquired it. Okay, brilliant. Now let me introduce you properly. You are Matthew Pearl, (laughs) American novelist. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Matthew, where to begin with this? Um, 
why don't you set, I mean, there are so many great elements. There's Ulysses S. Grant suspending habeas corpus. There's even a cameo by Walt Whitman and then a chloroform rag. It is uh, a story with a long and uh, completely suspenseful arc uh, through and through. Why don't you set the scene a little bit by giving us the historical background to the 1870s in South Carolina where the bulk of the story takes place? Sure. Well, as we all know, Reconstruction kicks in after the Civil War, and in broad strokes, it's creating the transition from uh, slavery to a post-slavery world. But in reality, of course, there were many people in the South that were not willing to allow that to happen quietly. And the Ku Klux Klan, which as far as we can tell, gets started around 1865 in Tennessee and then spreads to the other states uh, in the South, is one of many groups, some more or less organized than others, that are attempting to restrain the new rights, the new regimes that are coming in in order to establish opportunities for black populations and to secure voting rights, a long, a long list of goals and ambitions to change the climate. The Ku Klux Klan, of course, is the one that, that we still know more than any other today. Uh, but at the time, it was a very mysterious organization and, and very intentionally mysterious. Of course, the costumes that we think of, which, which would have looked a bit different back then, uh, were a deliberate way of not just disguising identities, but also projecting a kind of supernatural uh, mystery, mystique, to the group. And it worked, and people gradually realized there was this terrifying monster building in the South. Uh-huh. And one of the ways that you really demonstrate the ins- insidiousness of it and the extent of it is through this particular villain, Dr. Bratton. Describe a little bit about how socially respectable Southerners donned the hood and conducted terror raids and lynchings in order to enforce white supremacy. Yeah, so I zero in in the article, K-Troop, on this one particular narrative and place in York County, South Carolina. Uh, And as you mentioned, there's a particular antagonist to the article uh, whose name is Braddon, uh, James Rufus Braddon, and he is the most successful doctor in the county. And these were um, prominent citizens, many of the leaders of the the Klan dens, as they called the sort of individual groupings of the Klan, and they would be the ones out front in governmental responsibilities, in professions like law and medicine. And then they would also be the ones leading in disguise these Klan activities, uh, which were just as horrific as you can imagine, with everything ranging from sexual assaults to murders. And because these were the same people who were magistrates, uh, sheriffs, judges, there was almost no consequences to what they were doing. So how did it come to be that the federal government uh, decided it should intervene and send a U.S. military force into the area to clean out the KKK? Well, South Carolina was probably the 
best organized of the the Klan regimes at this time, and the governor of South Carolina petitioned the Grant administration to to send troops because there really was nothing left of the state militias to handle what was going on. The the Klan just were too powerful to counter with with any state forces. So Grant decides that enough is enough. And he and his cabinet and his administration come up with a strategy, which is to make an example of, let's say, the worst in their judgment county, uh, which was York County in South Carolina, uh, to create a domino effect of scaring off and sort of undermining the rest of the Klan organization. So this was this was a story that really appealed to me, just the idea that there was this almost 19th century version of special forces operation, where we're sending in a, a highly skilled operative and troops to root out a very entrenched criminal element. And Matthew, can you talk about how Ulysses Grant's suspension of the writ of habeas corpus fit into this desire to make South Carolina into an example for other Klan holdouts? Sure. Well, there was a series of legislative acts that set up this possibility, all, all especially tailored toward the rise of the white supremacist movements, particularly the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, these were called the Enforcement Acts. And Grant was pushing these through uh, in order to get to the point where he could suspend habeas corpus. And this was the, the first and last time outside of war that this has ever been done in, in the United States. So it really was this historic moment, sort of legally, but also in terms of a, a sort of courageous decision. It's, it's not just a sort of legal or military tactic, but this, this was not the easy way to go. There was a, a lot of pushback, both from the South and from the rest of the country, in sending uh, military forces to round up uh, without the rights uh, that we usually have in court so many people. And, and th- that was the, the sort of dramatic climax of the story that, that made me want to tell it, was the sort of sting operation to get every single member of the Ku Klux Klan in South Carolina uh, and in the case of the story I tell in York County. Matthew, I, I want to ask you about the preposterous reverse kismet of the KKK all of a sudden becoming topical again, pathetically so, in 2016. What was your reaction to seeing the leading candidate for the GOP unable to disclaim support from that organization? This was a really strange part of the experience of publishing this piece, is that this was not supposed to be the least bit topical. Uh, in fact, very little that I write tends to be topical. I, I, I really don't try to tie anything into current events. So it was very odd timing because by the time we were ready to run with K Troop, uh, this had suddenly this had suddenly hit the news cycles. You know, I'm much more of a historical writer, both in fiction and nonfiction, than any kind of political observer. I don't know that I, I can even make sense of, of the Ku Klux Klan at all. It's so confusing to me that it's back in the news or that it's in the news in a way that, that makes this relevant. Mm. 
All right, well, the piece is called K-Troop, the story of the eradication of the first Ku Klux Klan. It's by Matthew Pearl. His novels include The Dante Club and The Technologists. Matthew, thank you so much for, for the piece, first of all, but also coming on the show to discuss it. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we got? Our sponsor this week is Amazon's original series, Bosch, which returns for an all-new season. Based on Michael Connelly's best-selling novels about Harry Bosch, the tenacious LAPD homicide detective, who's back on the job after an involuntary leave of absence. His first case back may prove his biggest challenge yet as he follows a dangerous trail of corruption and collusion, one that uncovers the dark side of the police department and threatens Bosch's relentless pursuit of truth. Truth. That's Bosch from Amazon's original series. All right, Steve, what's next? Uh, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Well, I'm going to endorse a uh, controversial and virulently racist cultural object, but one that seems extremely germane to our discussion today. Since we talked about the Ku Klux Klan and the initial demise of the Ku Klux Klan, it seems worthy to note that the next rise of the Ku Klux Klan, as Matthew Pearl notes in his wonderful reported article, happened in the first part of the 20th century. And a big part of the of the reason for that was D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, the 1915 Civil War epic that um, that is now rarely shown because of its offensive content, but was at the time an extremely successful and influential movie, and was also protested at the time by black groups for, and was I think I believe in part responsible for the growth of the NAACP and similar groups, protest groups against that movie. So, Birth of a Nation turned 100 last year. It was to be seen on all kinds of big screens with live piano accompaniment, and uh, I managed to catch one of those and was blown away by the movie and by sort of the, the visual language of the movie and seeing how, how influential it actually was for its time, while at the same time being really repulsed by the uh, the second half of the movie, which is essentially sort of a uh, cavalry rides to the rescue with the Ku Klux Klan as the cavalry. Um, so I recommend Birth of a Nation. But if possible, you can see the whole thing in all kinds of places, including, I believe, on YouTube and all three hours of it. But I really recommend, if possible, watching it sort of with high fidelity and with some sort of material surrounding it that helps explain and contextualize the movie. The Kino video edition, for example, has all kinds of great scholarly extras about the re reception of the movie at the time and the history of the Ku Klux Klan and D.W. Griffith's history. And uh, anyway, it's just something I think that if you really want to wrap your mind around this this question as an American, you, you have to not just be able to reference Birth of a Nation in an essay, but actually have watched the thing in your adult life. Not to mention that a new movie is coming out this year with the exact same title, Birth of a Nation. That's about the Nat Turner Rebellion of 1831, and I think it will be some attempt to to take back, you know, that that epic making status from D.W. Griffith. That movie is directed by and stars Nate Parker, and it just sold at Sundance for, I believe, more money than any movie ever has, and uh, and will be released this fall. So all that to say, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. If you haven't seen it, steal yourself, sit down, and watch the whole thing. Oh my well, God, I've man. definitely never seen it, and I sort of assumed I never should, but. I guess I will consider your endorsement. I mean, I think certainly as sort of like a scholar of the early part of the 20th century, it seems it seems really germane to discussions of, of film as well as race and of just kind of popular culture because mm -hmm. it's a movie that everybody saw, everybody talked about, and everybody was already fighting about in 1915. Hmm. Julia, what do you got? I had such a fun evening on Friday night going to the opening of the Metrograph Theater in the Lower East Side Jealous. of Manhattan. It is a 
teensy tiny little art house theater that's opening up like a tender spring shoot on Ludlow Street. And I went there and saw The Purple Rose of Cairo. They, their opening run of movies is all movies about moviegoers. The other movie screening on opening night was Taxi Driver, but I'd seen that already and I've never seen Purple Rose of Cairo. So my double endorsement is The Purple Rose of Cairo, which is a very, very sweet, tender, romantic Woody Allen movie about the oft-cited but not much depicted time during the Depression when everybody escaped their cares by going to see cheap movies all the time at the local cinema. And it features a great performance by Mia Farrow, but a truly mind-bogglingly fun performance from Jeff Daniels, who I just never, Mm. I didn't know that Jeff Daniels had been in this movie, had never really even imagined a Woody Allen-ish Jeff Daniels. He plays both an actor uh, who's sort of canny and knowing and Hollywoody and vain, and which is kind of a classic Jeff Daniels role. At least uh, you could see traces of it in his newsroom performance. And then he plays a very naive, boyish, gung ho explorer type in the role that the Jeff Daniels actor figure is playing. And his gee whiz naive is hilarious and wonderful. And so I endorse the Purple Rose of Cairo. I actually the movie it called to mind for me actually was Hail Caesar, which is another kind of master filmmaker's love letter to an early age of cinema. But I think this one is better and worth seeing. And if you are in the New York area, definitely check out Metrograph. They have an incredibly ambitious, arty, highfalutin list of movies coming down the pike this spring. Um, But it's a very sweet and interesting theater that's certainly worth people in the area checking out. Yeah, I'm excited. I've been hearing cinephiles buzzing about Metrograph for months now, and now that it's open, I can't wait to go catch a movie there. Their website is also great. It's full of all these great film essays and wonderful design. I'm just excited about the emergence of a new arty cinema downtown. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a very nice combination of chic and raffish. It has like very chic seats and a little rough around the edges vibe. Uh, Julia, remind me, have we ever discussed granola on this show? <laughs> I can't I can't rightly recall, Steve. <laughs> I can't either, but in case we haven't, um, I have a, a very quick pre-endorsement, which is try, a, if you're, I just happen to be out of maple syrup. In fact, really the real story is my younger daughter is slightly allergic to maple syrup. I think it's the sulfites. So I tried a tincture of molasses to go with the honey in order to just break up the honeyness of my granola. So, so good, man. I'm I'm ready to throw down all over again on this one. But anyway, my real endorsement is, uh, did anyone else see this on Complex.com? Someone did, uh, a group of people, I think, got together and did the best rapper alive every year since 1979. It is incredible. It's an, it's really a truly an incredible document because what it, what it really is, it's a almost a, com- not comprehensive exactly, but it's like a, a, brilliant history of hip-hop kind of from the beginning up to the present in the form of a throwaway internet list but within three sentences you realize you're in the presence of people who have like thought this out so deeply and so interestingly and you just get this synoptic panoramic view of the history of hip-hop it's like one of the best things I've read in that genre I mean there's an amazing book called Can't Stop Won't Stop which is also a great history of hip-hop but this is like this is just a great way to tell it i thought it was incredible and then i also want to say i finally now that i've sort of completed writing a book i'm going back and watching stuff that we started watching if you can believe it i'm finishing true detective season one right now 
<laughs> Did they find the Yellow King yet? <laughs> oh, man. I find it completely gripping. I mean, I just love all the Schopenhauer horseshit that's flying out of Matthew McConaughey's <laughs> mouth. It's so fucking amusing. And I just thought both actors really just they uh, clearly they brought their a games i i'm compl- i understand why it might have lost some people along the way i just am completely Wait, gripped by it but the crucial question steve is have you seen the final episode no okay so wait Let's discuss again once you have. Uh, okay, because well, here's my real endorsement. It's um, Michelle Monaghan's performance in it is so good. And they say acting is always reacting. That's true, but sometimes acting is like really reacting. It's really acting as a kind of, you know, that's not a thankful part that she has in that, but such a big part of that show is, you know, while one of them is the Schopenhauerian loner, the other one of them is, the other one, Woody Halston, is like boxed into this marriage you know, that he's dishonoring and that, you know, racks him with guilt and to play the wife of the, you know, philandering cop, like is kind of a generic acting assignment. And I just thought she was doing, I just think she's doing great work. So to kind of tweak it a little bit, because at this point, endorsing True Detective in 2016 is a little bit, for me, even on the dorky side, I'm going to go with Michelle Monaghan's performance in True Detective. That's my endorsement. I stick by it. I look forward to these time-traveling uh, dispatches from Rip Van Steve in <laughs> weeks to come. <laughs> right. Next up, the Mary Tyler Moore Show. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, Julia, thank you. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest for Julia Turner and Dana Stevens and, of course, Carl Wilson and various others. I'm Stephen Metcalf. We'll see you soon. Send the poets, vulnerable people, not invulnerable drones. That was poet Saul Williams with his radical suggestion for dealing with ISIS. I'm Jason Gotts, host of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Each week we surprise smart people with topics they're not prepared to discuss. Salman Rushdie on astrophysics, Jesse Ventura on alien life forms. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Think Again, it's deep fun.